tonight. Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you. Let me say happy Father's Day, as Daniel said, to our dads. One of the great joys of my life is the privilege of being a dad, and my oldest son is away for most of the summer, so it was very encouraging to get a text from him this morning that he remembered and said, Happy Father's Day. That was very encouraging to me. So, dads, thank you for what you do and who you are. And I also remember on Father's Day that sometimes the role of a father is not necessarily biological father. Many of you in this room have been blessed by spiritual fathers, men who have poured into your life the role of discipleship, and you are who you are in Christ because of other men that God has brought alongside you. And I pray many of you in this room are that to those that are coming behind you. You are disciples and investing your life in the lives of other men who come in behind you in this journey of faith. So good to be with you uh, this morning. I want to invite you to, uh, and you're probably thinking, man, we're up uh, early preaching. We're going to sing more at the end. Don't worry. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together here in just a few minutes and have kind of set it up to sing together more at the end of our service this morning. But I want you to go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, That's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. And turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're going to land there in just a few minutes, this Old Testament book that for many of you uh, may be one of those books that you don't know a whole lot about. Uh, Maybe one of those books that what you know about it may not be all good. And maybe it's just that book that's all negative, that Vanity of Vanities book. We're going to try to pull some truth out for our lives and our practical journeys this morning as we continue through the story of walking through God's Word together as a church family. This past week, if you were following along in your reading, maybe getting caught up, uh, you would have been in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to land there in just a few minutes. But uh, what if you could open up the journal of the richest man on the planet? Or what if you could open up the journal of the most influential leader on the planet? Or maybe one of the greatest political leaders in all of history. If you could open up and hear his thoughts and his perspectives on life, on the world as it is, this world we live in, wouldn't that be just intriguing to be able to hear some thoughts from a Incredibly influential man, an incredibly great man of influence in our history. Well, I want you to turn, and if you haven't already, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to read several verses here, and I want you to just listen and know that you're hearing the thoughts, the divinely inspired thoughts of one of the greatest men who ever lived from a military standpoint, a political standpoint. He was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, and he's going to speak to us this morning, a little bit, by the way, about the way he sees life, all right? I'm going to read it. You can follow along on the screen or follow along in your Bible there. It says this, verse 1, the words of the preacher or the teacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, we know this is Solomon. Verse 2, he says, vanity of vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, he said. And that's one of those famous statements in the book of Ecclesiastes, just to tell you the word vanity means empty. It means empty. He says it's, there's emptiness that he's going to begin to talk about here. He says, verse 3, What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? He says, a generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, hastens to its place, and there it rises again. Verse 6, blowing toward the south and then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular course. It returns. Verse 7, the rivers, they flow to the sea, and the sea is not full. The place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Seems to be making reference to this treadmill of life that just at times seems to be the same old Same old, same old, monotonous treadmill of life. Verse 8, he says, all things are wearisome. The word wearisome is this idea of, of exhaustion due to the repetitious nature of life. 
He said this day in and day out sometimes is just so wearisome. And whether you want to admit it this morning, some of you are sitting there reading and you go, man, I, I can relate to Solomon in that. Seems like there's this cycle of life, man. We, we get up in the morning and we start our day and we have all these duties and responsibilities. And we, if we're parents, we get the kids ready and we send them off to school. And then we go to our school and we rush through the day and we get all the tasks done. And we come home and we try to get dinner ready and we try to have a moment or two maybe with our kids. And we get them in bed and we just fall in bed in exhaustion only to wake up the next day and what? Do it again. <laughs> and Solomon's very honest here about the monotony, if you will, and sometimes the wearisome of life. Verse 8, he said, man is not able to tell it. He says, the eye is never satisfied. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. The ear it's never filled with hearing. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is only that which will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. The patterns of humanity, the patterns that we see, even this week, some of the things you watch in the news and you grapple with the injustices, you think, oh my goodness, and if you look back over history, it seems to be the continued cycle of injustice and unfairness and some of these things, just there's nothing, it seems like, new under the sun. Verse 10, is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new, already it's existed for ages which were before us, verse 11. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will still come later. He says, those that labor and those that strive and those that try to make an impact later generations, they don't remember. <laughs> they don't remember. If you think Solomon's kind of a Debbie Downer here and you're thinking, man, I'm glad I came to church this morning. Well, let's just continue on to see what else he has to say here. Verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done. Now watch this, under heaven. Solomon's going to use a phrase throughout the book of Ecclesiastes over and over. Under heaven, under the sun, under the sun. And the idea is this worldliness, this world, what we can see in this world. He says it is a grievous, another strong word. He said it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He said, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, here's a conclusion statement. All is vanity and striving after the wind. <laughs> he said, this is the wisest man who ever lived. This is one of the richest men who ever lived. And this is, this is his conclusion. It's all vain and striving after the wind. Verse 15, which, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold, I've magnified and increased my wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth and a wisdom of knowledge. Verse 17, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Translation, to try to make sense of all of this, to try to see how all of this fits together. I realize this also is striving after the wind. Verse 18, our last verse we'll read here. He says, because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Welcome to Tri-Cities Baptist Church. So, Pastor Mike, what is going on here? Well, what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to try to back up and tell you a little bit about this man Solomon and what was going on in his life that brought him to the place where he looks at all of life and concludes it's all just empty. What was going on in Solomon's heart and what were the patterns of his thought and what was happening in his life that would bring him to the place where he looks at all of life and says it's like, it's like chasing the wind. I mean, you catch it and you chase it and you pursue it and you get it and whoop, it's fleeting and it's gone. What would get this man Solomon to this place? Well, if you've been following along in the story, reading with us, and as we're preaching through, we're now to the period in the history of Israel where Solomon is now the king of Israel. And we looked a little bit at that last week. Son of David, Israel as a nation is now a dynasty. They're not a, you know, a nomadic tribe walking through the wilderness anymore. They're the most powerful nation on the planet at this time. And Solomon's the king. 
Solomon, one of the most powerful men of history, and especially of this time. I want to read you just a few things that the Bible says about Solomon to try to get us to understand what would bring him to the place to say these things he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You don't have to turn back there. These words, verses will be up on the screen. 1 Kings 4 says of Solomon, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind. Like the sand on the seashore, his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Solomon, hands down, the Bible says, one of the wisest men that have ever lived in all of history. 1 Kings 10 speaks of his wealth, talking about the wealth that would come in to Solomon on a regular basis. He was a, a man that knew no limits of wealth. 1 Kings 10, 14 says, Now the weight of gold which came in to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. He said, I don't even know how much that is. Well, let me translate. That's 25 tons of gold every year came into his treasury. You can do the math. Let's see, an ounce of gold. I don't know what the rate is. Multiply that. I'm 16. You can figure it out on your own. A lot of money. Almost immeasurable wealth was Solomon's. 1 Kings 10 says, And Solomon's drinking vessels were of pure gold. I mean, I drink out of a Dixie cup, right? Solomon drinks out of a pure gold chalice. It was surrounded by luxury. And the vessels of his house and the forest of Lebanon, they were, car- they were covered with pure gold. There was nothing silver because silver was not even valuable in the days of Solomon. Man, silver, psh, who wants silver? Gold was so prevalent. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish and the ships of Hiram once every three years. Listen, these ships would show up at the docks of Solomon and they would bring gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. <laughs> Solomon had a peacock farm. I don't know what you need peacocks for, but Solomon liked them. And he had all the peacocks his heart could ever desire. Point is, Solomon had everything his heart could desire. 1 Kings 10, 23 says, So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. That's what the Bible says. God had blessed Solomon in such a degree. He's wisest, one of the richest, one of the most influential kings that ever lived. Now, I want to read something to you that God had said to Solomon and to all the kings that were ever going to sit on the throne of Israel. It was, a, it was an admonition from the mouth of God that was delivered by Moses. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. It was back in Deuteronomy 17 because, again, we're trying to set the stage and the context is going to lead us to why Solomon would say what he said in Ecclesiastes 1. Deuteronomy, speaking from Moses, instruction of all the kings of Israel says this, 1715. It says, you will set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Verse 16. Now, we're going to give some warnings to the king. God, in His infinite wisdom, wrote in His Word hundreds of years before Solomon ever became king, before Saul or David ever became king, some instructions for the king. Here's what God said, 17, Deuteronomy 17, 16. He says, Moreover, he, the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord God has said, you shall never return that way again. Stop right there. He said, the king, when you get on your throne as the king, don't set your mind on the multiplication of horses. Why? That doesn't even make any sense to us today. The idea is in that day, a horse communicated great military strength. He said, don't fix your hope, king on the size of your military strength and the size of your army. Your heart, watch this, or your heart will begin to drift and you will set your hope on the, on the size of your army instead of the God who fights for you. Continues on, verse 17. You shall not multiply wives. Well, that's a good idea. One's enough. He said, you shall not multiply wives for himself, this king. Now, multiplication of wives in that day wasn't necessarily because he, you know, just wanted more and more wives. Often in that day, it was for a military alliance. If I'm going to have an alliance with the king of, you fill in the blank, Egypt, 
then the military alliance will be strengthened if he gives me his daughter and I marry his daughter. And I can rest in the alliances I have with all of these nations. Kings, don't go around multiplying these alliances and multiplying wives. Why? What's this? Or else your heart will turn away. Check that. Check that. Nor shall he, the king, greatly increase in silver and gold for himself. So don't put your hope in military strength. Don't put your hope in these political alliances. And don't put your hope in amassing all of this gold and silver and treasure. Because what you begin to focus your attention on, watch this, that's where your heart will go and your heart will begin to shift. So God wanted the kings that were going to sit on the throne of Israel to fully understand this. He, he continued on. He said some other things to this king, these kings. Verse 18. Listen to what God said. Speaking through Moses, again, to the kings that were going to come, including Solomon. Now it shall come about after when he sits on the throne of the kingdom. Listen to this. I love this. He said, he, the king, shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of all the Levitical priests. At that time, all they had was the first five books. The the fifth book, Deuteronomy, is still being written in a sense. So it's early in the revelation of God and His Scriptures. But God is saying, take what I have spoken, take what I have revealed. When you become the king, you're going to get out your stylus, and you're going to get a book, a parchment, and you're going to write it out for yourself. Next verse. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Stop right there. That's good counsel, right? You're going to lead my people, and you're going to sit on the throne of Israel. Here's your first instruction. Take my revelation, that which I have spoken. You're going to write a copy for yourself. You're going to keep it with you, and you're going to read it all the days of your life. Read God's Word. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and of these statutes. Now, stop right there. Solomon is now on the throne. Deuteronomy 17 applies to Solomon the same way it applied to all the kings who came before him. Fear God, keep His word, honor the Lord, keep it in front of you, walk in your heart fixed on the Lord as your confidence, as your strength. And for many, many years of Solomon's life, hey, that that was Solomon. I mean, if you've been reading through the story and you've been reading through 1 Kings and you've been reading through Chronicles, you know what 1 Kings 3.3, for example, says. Put that verse up on the screen. Speaking of Solomon, now Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father, David. Early on in Solomon's life, when, when Solomon wrote Song of Solomon, we studied that a few weeks ago, and then kind of in the mid part of his life, when he wrote Proverbs, This was Solomon. Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon was walking with God. And God was using and blessing the life of Solomon greatly. Now, if you've been reading along, you know that's not how Solomon's life ended. You know, that wasn't the latter years of Solomon's life. Deuteronomy 17 that we just read, Solomon, watch this, chose to just jump right over. Now, 1 Kings 11, you don't have to turn there. I'll read this for you as well. Again, this is kind of background to set up what we're going to look at in Ecclesiastes quickly. So over time, the pressure of the voices around him, the counsel of other kings... The voices of all of these wives that he began to amass, his heart began to shift. Now watch this, 1 Kings 10, verse 26. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 14,000 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed the chariots in the cities of the king of Jerusalem. 1 Kings 10, 28. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. So he's amassing these chariots and he's amassing these horses and he's amassing this army. It doesn't stop there. 1 Kings 11.1 1 says this, Now Solomon. Now Solomon loved 
interesting that word is there after what we read in chapter 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Now, chapter 11. Now, Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. Solomon held fast to these in love. Now, stop right there. I don't know what your definition of the multiplication of wives would be. (laughs) I think Solomon nailed it. Okay? Verse 3. Solomon had 700 wives. Oh, my goodness. Stop right there. Now, I know that... That is rife with a lot of one-liners that I could make about a man who had 700 wives, right? All you married men are thinking, oh my goodness, I've got one and that's plenty. 700 means 700 wives and 700 mother-in-laws, right? You're thinking, oh my goodness, and 700 anniversaries to remember. Could you imagine Just keep in mind, there's some of these wives that Solomon barely, barely knew if he knew, it, knew them at all. This is for political expediency and the establishment of these alliances with foreign kings. He's amassing all these wives. It continues, he had princesses. He had 300 concubines. If you don't know what a concubine is, don't go Google concubine. I'll just tell you, concubine is a, is a secondary wife. It's like a, a slave wife. Kings in that day, the status of your kingdom was measured by the size of your, your, your wives and how many concubines you could have around you. So Solomon begins amassing all of this. Verse 3, and his wives turned his heart away. Hmm. Just like God had said. In his word, hundreds of years before, he said, if you begin to pursue these things, Solomon, they're going to turn your heart away. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father had been. And you can read the rest of First Kings on your own. Consequences, Solomon falls into wicked idolatry. Solomon begins to pursue all the false gods of the land. His heart just continues to drift away from the Lord his God. And ultimately, it results in the kingdom of Israel being split. You can read about that and we'll get there in a few weeks as a result of Solomon's wickedness. Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with you and me this morning? Now listen, here's the progression of Solomon. Solomon began to drift from regular intake of God's Word. Pretty soon, Solomon began to step over God's Word in his life. That surely doesn't apply to me. And he began to live his life apart from God's direction and leading. He began to pursue security and prominence and prestige in the things that the world promised to give all of this. In this I will find security. In this I will find confidence. In this I will find identity. And ultimately, to sum it up, Solomon's drift of his life, and this is painfully applicable to you and me, Solomon began to live his life in independence from the Lord his God. He wasn't listening to the voice of the Lord. He wasn't seeking the Lord his God. And his affections and his attention began to drift. And he lived in violation to what he himself wrote in Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 4.23, Solomon wrote in the middle of his life, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. It is a battle for your and my heart constant. What captures the affections and the attentions of our heart? So, with Solomon's heart now drifting, Solomon began to pursue everything under the sun. He wanted more. 
He wanted more houses, and he wanted more chariots, and he wanted more wives, and he began to live. Watch this. That's why I said in chapter 1, we're going to look at it again in a minute. He began to, his focus clearly began to be not on the God of heaven. His focus was clearly everything under the sun. In this, here I will find my joy, my satisfaction, my meaning. I'm going to go for everything this world has to offer. How do you know that's what Solomon did? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can turn there if you like then we're going to go back to chapter one in a second Solomon in the mid to the latter part of his life as his heart continued to drift verse four Ecclesiastes chapter two says Solomon I enlarged my works and I built houses for what myself anything wrong with a house no Ecclesiastes teaches that Solomon began to build houses and the end game was the houses. He began to look in these things to be his ultimate satisfaction and joy. He said, I began to build houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I guess he had to have all that for his peacock farm. I don't know. Verse 6, and I made ponds of water for myself from which I could irrigate the forest for all of my growing trees. And all of this I had, I had to have more to support it. And it began to grow like kudzu and my kingdom began to grow. And I only wanted, watch this. I only wanted more. Verse 8, also I collected for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasure of men and many concubines. Verse 9, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Stop right there. Solomon, because his heart had begun to drift, he now bought into every commercial he saw on television. He now bought into every billboard he saw. He now bought into the pressure of the age. Go for all the world has to offer. It is there you'll find meaning, hope, and joy. And watch this. Now listen, you've got to get this. Solomon, maybe more than any person who ever lived on the face of the earth, pursued everything the world had to offer apart from God. And watch this. He got it. (laughs) He got it. He had everything his heart could desire. He said that, verse 10, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Now stop right there. He amassed everything his heart could imagine. He pursued everything he could under the sun. He lists them all there in chapter 2. And then he gets to a little bit later in the stage of his life, And you come inevitably to verse 11. And let me just say this to you and me. At at a point in all of our lives, we will come to this crossroads of verse 11. Watch this. Solomon had everything his heart could ever desire. He pursued everything under the sun that the world apart from God had to offer. He got it. He amassed it. He had it. And he says in verse 11, thus I considered. Stop right there. You and all of us will come to those times, and I'm speaking to those who know Christ I'm especially speaking to those in your life that do not know Christ. There will be a point that every person comes. They wrestle with it. We fight with it. We try to block it out with the noise of the world. We try to fill our lives with activities to keep from having to ask this question. We must consider all that we've amassed, all that we've built, all that we've pursued and say, is any of this really worth it? I've got, here's Solomon. I've got everything the world has to offer under the sun. I've pursued it. I've got it. Solomon, what is your conclusion at the end when you have everything under the sun as you've been living apart from God? Where has it gotten you, Solomon? Verse 11. All my activities with which my hands had done and the labor which which I had exerted, everything I had amassed, if you will. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. (sighs) 
Now listen, through the incredible inspiration of Scripture, God is able to give us a perspective of a man who lived a great deal of his life independent from God and His Word and pursued, remember chapter 1, everything under the sun and amassed everything the world had to offer. What's this? For Himself. And came to a point, that's when he wrote chapter 1, and he makes a conclusion here in verse 11. It is all empty. And the majority of my life has been chasing after the what? Wind. I got it. And it was gone. That's why in chapter 1 you have the perspective of a man who lived a great deal of his life even as a believer, independent from God and his life, he said, was so monotonous he couldn't bear the monotony of it. His life was so wearisome with the exhaustion and the repetition of life, he couldn't bear it. He was never satisfied. Verse 8 of chapter 1, he said, I wanted to leave a legacy, but I realized nobody would remember. He said, I tried to put all these things together and trying to live independently from God, it just left me with the conclusion that it's all pointless, it's all vanity, it's all striving after the world. I don't know that I've personally ever read the book of Ecclesiastes quite with that perspective. What you have in the book of Ecclesiastes is a gift to you, the church, and to you, well, there went my Bible, to you that's trying to make disciples. Ecclesiastes answers the questions that every human being on the planet is asking. Solomon had it all and he was asking those questions. You at times in your life are asking the same questions. Is there any purpose? Is there any meaning? And listen, I guarantee you those people that you're praying for on your car that don't know Jesus and those people that are in your office that don't know Jesus, their life is wrapped up in this and they are asking the very questions. Is there any meaning? Is there any hope? Is there any purpose? My life is so wearisome. You've got the answer. Now, what I want to do in the time I have remaining very briefly, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to try to apply this to our lives and pull some of these application points out of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to ask two questions, then I'm going to give you some application points to your life. Number one is this. This is the question you at times have asked. This is the question you may be asking now. And I guarantee those around you that don't know Jesus are asking, number one, Why does my life often seem so pointless, meaningless, and boring? Why is that? Why does it seem we're constantly trying to push back this idea of meaninglessness and boredom and there's these repetitions of life and what we do, we just have to turn around and do again? What is it about this world that we live in that if we put our hope in things under the sun only will leave us meaningless and empty. Let me tell you very quickly, it is because you have to understand the theology of the world that we live in. There was a day, watch this, that everything in the world worked perfectly. Did you know that? Everything fit. If you fix something, it stayed fixed. And heck, you didn't even have to fix it. Everything was perfect. Relationships were right. You tilled the ground and it didn't fight against you. That's a Genesis 1 and 2 world. We don't live in that world anymore. Adam and Eve jumped over the command of God, the law of God. They fell into sin and they began the cycle of death. Adam and Eve and all humanity after them began to decline and began to die. The world at that point was still a perfect place. And God, listen, God in His grace and God in His sovereignty knew fallen, sinful, dying man cannot live in a perfect world. So Romans 8 tells us that God had to curse the world with futility Because sinful, dying man cannot live in a perfect world. Romans 8, listen to this. Paul gives you the explanation of this. He says, Romans 8, go ahead and put that up. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the futility of this world, we all feel it, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's something better coming. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? Verse 20, keep going. 
Here's an explanation of why the world is so futile. Verse 20. For the creation itself, all of it, the creation itself was subjected to futility. You know what the word futility means? Vanity. Same idea Solomon uses. Paul is most likely taking the thoughts of Ecclesiastes and carrying them over into Romans and giving you an understanding of the world. The world itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it. God had to curse the world with futility so that man who was broken could continue in this world knowing that one day he's going to redeem the world and make it all right. You live in a broken world. Things that you fix are going to have to be fixed again. The grass that you grow is going to have to be grown again. The things that you do, you're always asking, do they have an ultimate result? Is there making any difference? The people you invest in may not ever remember you. The things you struggle with in your relationships, it's like the earth itself works against us. There's this constant battle, right? Why? You live in a fallen world. Now watch this. Here's the tension, though. Solomon helps us. And by the way, arm yourself here in your mission to be able to say to that friend, why is it that the world seems like such a struggle? And you can say, I have the answer because did you know God has told us this world's broken and you're never going to find full meaning in this world. God wired it that way. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says this, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has, watch this, planted eternity in the human heart. Stop right there. Here's the tension. Every human being, even though fallen, continues to bear the image of God. Every human being has eternity planted in their heart. Here's what that means. A a human created for eternity, a human being wired for eternity, watch this, who continues to try to find satisfaction in a broken, fallen world will always wind up with a sense of meaninglessness. See that? So for you and me, when we look to futile things, earthly things to fill eternal voids, eternity in our heart, the result will always be emptiness. God, listen to this. God has wired the world in such a way that every human being, every person will have to come face to face at some point. Listen. Every human being will have to come face to face at some point with exactly what Solomon did and what every person will with the inescapable sense to say, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And you as the children of light and the people of God are there then to say there is more. His name is Jesus Christ. Second question, quickly. So that answers the question of why does it often seem that our life is so pointless and meaningless? We live in a fallen world. You, can, you continue to pursue only the things under the sun. That's always going to be the result. But secondly, second question. How then do we find joy and purpose as we live under the sun? Pastor Mike, I'm really glad you asked that question because man, most things Solomon said are just depressing. Is there hope? I'll read you a few verses here out of Ecclesiastes and a few other places very quickly. We'll close. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You want to flip over there? I'm going to read what Solomon says at the very end of his life. Now, we don't know how far from death Solomon is here. It doesn't matter. But we do know he's in his latter years. And you can read chapter 12 to support that. He describes what it's like to get old in verses 2 through 8 and 9 there of Ecclesiastes 12. Solomon's going to say some things here later in his life, and it's a strong admonition to you and me. And here's what he's going to say. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, and you will say, I have no delight in them. Here's the word of Solomon, an older fellow, reaching back now to the younger generation. Solomon has pursued things that have only left him empty. He's tried the life of living independently. And he's screaming back to the younger generation behind him. And he's saying, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Let me give you an application to that. Here's two of them. Ready? Number one. Application is this. Solomon is saying this. 
worship God, and enjoy His gifts. Hang on, I'm going to explain that. Solomon said, I came to the conclusion that I had pursued all of the stuff and all of the things as my God. And he's saying now to the generation that's coming, listen, only in a divine relationship with God, know Him, worship Him, follow Him, then will you even be able to enjoy the gifts He gives you. Is there anything with God wrong with God blessing your life with possessions and wealth and prestige? Absolutely not. The problem is when we begin to look to those things not, watch this, not as a gift from God, but as our God. And let me to tell you really quick, do you know how to ruin a good gift from God? Is when you take a good gift from God, And you begin to treat it as God and expect it to do what only God can do in your life. You want to ruin a healthy relationship? You look for that husband or that wife or that boyfriend or that girlfriend to give you identity and to give you ultimate purpose and to give you ultimate meaning. And you have looked to that person to be God and it will crush them and you have destroyed a good gift from God. You want to know how to, parents, you want to know how to not enjoy your kids? You look to them to be your identity and your purpose and your meaning ultimately under the heaven. I have kids. I love my kids. They are a gift from God. I cherish them. But if I look to my 10-year-old daughter to give me the satisfaction only God can give, I have asked her to do something she cannot do, and the joy is gone. Solomon says, remember your Creator. He's God. He can do only the things a God can do in your life. Secondly, very quickly, give your best years to the things that matter. Oh, you can just hear the passion in Solomon's voice. He says, listen, young people, I'm now old. You can read how he talks about his years are now fleeting. He said, my life, if I had my youth back, I realized I pursued all those things apart from God that I thought mattered. And now I look back and they're fleeting This is an admonition to the older generation to reach back to the younger generation and say this either. Here's what my life has pursued and I want you to know in Christ it matters. You chase after God or in whatever case it may be, you would be able to say to the younger generation, I pursued this and it was empty and it's vain. Don't make the same mistakes I made. And Solomon's doing that to the younger generation and speaking back to those that would come after him. Worship God, enjoy His gifts. Secondly, give your best years to what matters. Thirdly, build your life on the revelation of God. You will not, you cannot understand the world that we live in or ever make any sense of it, trying to make sense of it in your own thinking and living independently. God has given us His Word and His revelation to understand it. Verse 11 Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon says, The words of wise men are like goads. They they prod us along to what matters. These are masters and collections are like well-driven nails. The picture is nailing something in that will hold you steady so you will not be pulled away by the winds of the world. He said the revelation of God is like well-driven nails. And watch this, end of verse 11. They are given by one shepherd. Reference to the divine inspiration of Scripture. There is one shepherd that speaks truth. He has given you his word. Listen to me, beloved. We could preach a whole message on this. We have devoted the year to studying the Bible, to knowing the Bible. We're going to continue to do that, I promise. Build your life on the truth of God's word. Know what God says. That's the way you see your purpose. That's the way you see your meaning. That's the way we live our lives. Now I'm going to ask our team to come on up and begin to play. I'm going to make one last point, and then we're going to go into the Lord's Supper together. Last point is this. Pastor Mike, let's just be honest with each other. Let me speak now to, to followers of Christ. Are, 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 you, are you saying that as Jesus followers, will we, even though we're abiding in Christ, even though we're walking in the Spirit, Will we still struggle with the futility and emptiness in this life sometimes? Will we? Yeah. Sure will. 
There's, there's still a futility of this world. The things you try to build will seem like they're just coming undone. The, the things you're trying to pursue will seem like they're just opposing. There's still a struggle. But here, here's the point. This is my last point of application. Now listen. As followers of Christ, allow the futility of life under the sun. Here, now. What's this? To stir your affections for our ultimate home. So what does that mean? See, this is not home for us, child of God. It's never going to be right. We live in the tension of what ought to be and what now is and what is going to be someday. But when we're faced with those things that we can't, we wrestle with purpose, we wrestle with meaning, we go to the Word and we still struggle with this sense of there's just this futility in this world. Know that. And you know what that's to do? Listen. That is to drive you in love. Listen. To the one who one day is going to make all things new. I'll close with this and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Revelation 21.1 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Won't you celebrate that day? He said, I saw a new heaven and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell with them and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any pain or crying. Watch this. He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And to that we are to say, Come, Lord Jesus. The futility of this world that we face is to stir in our hearts. We are not home. Come, Lord Jesus, and make all things new and set all things right. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you know Christ, I invite you to celebrate that with us. And as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm going to invite you right now to simply bow your head right there where you're seated and prepare your heart for what we're about to do. I encourage you to prepare your heart this way. Now listen. Before I go and take the Lord's Supper, be bold enough to ask the Lord this. Father, has my heart begun to drift? Am I looking to things to do in my life what only you can do? As we take the Lord's Supper in a minute, you're intended to take that bread and remember that bread is a symbol of the broken body of Jesus Christ. He took the curse. He took the curse upon Himself. Remember the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, when we break this bread, Jesus said, I'll drink of this cup. I'll never drink of it again until I drink it anew in the kingdom with you. It is to cause us to look with great anticipation. He is coming and He will make all things new someday. Lord, we love you. God, stir in our hearts this morning as we wrestle with the futility of this world to long for you. God, help us to worship you and enjoy the good things you give us and long for home and take as many people along with us as we can. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to invite you now, when you're ready, I'm going to invite you. We have four different tables here at the front. We have gluten-free here in the middle if you need those. I invite you just to come in a second, take your cup and your bread and return to your seat. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So at this time, let me invite you to stand and let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together.
says, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathers his disciples there in an upper room and took bread with them and he broke it. He said, this represents my body that's going to be broken for you. And then he prayed and he blessed it. Let's pray together. Fathers, we prepare to take this. Lord, I pray in our own hearts, Lord, there's a moment of examination. Is there anything in our life, Lord, where our heart is drifting? Is there anything in our life, Lord, that's come between you and us or even us and a brother or a sister anything we need to make right before we take this bread Lord in our hearts we thank you for the broken body of the Lord Jesus thank you that you've taken the curse upon yourself thank you that you've made us new from the inside out and one day you'll make all things new that it was a symbol of his blood that was going to be spilled on their behalf and our behalf. And then he prayed and he blessed it. Let's pray. Father, as we take this fruit of the vine now, you've given us a tangible, visible symbol that we have been redeemed by the blood of the perfect one, the righteous one. Lord, in all our sin, all our brokenness, it is covered covered in Christ. We praise you. We thank you for the blood of the Lamb. In the name of King Jesus, we pray.